Hey everyone, just before we get started on this podcast here, I wanted a little explanation. Um, I'm still with Ben Stukesbury about a mission he was on in Ecuador, but uh, for quite a while on this podcast, we're going to be talking kind of around that trip, um, mostly because he's under some contractual obligations because they were doing a uh, like a video production of the whole thing. So uh, apologies if at sometimes it seems like we're kind of going around the houses a little bit, um, but we just ha- kind of had to navigate that situation carefully so that we could still talk uh, about kayaking in Ecuador, but also not get Ben in, in trouble uh, with regards to this trip, uh, which he was on recently. So yeah, into the podcast. Welcome back to Questions You Never Thought to Ask, the Whitewater Kayaking Podcast. My name is Seth Ashworth, and just before we get started this week, I've got to do a quick ad for my Patreon page. Patreon's a crowdfunding platform where you can chip in a couple of dollars every month. You get to hear the uh, podcast before it goes live to the public. We try and do uh, some interaction on there uh, from time to time. I admit I have been a bit slow this year, but I'm, do- I'm doing my best. We're getting better. If you want to support that, it's patreon.com slash Seth Ashworth, patreon.com slash seth ashworth all right this week's podcast uh this week's i say it like we're doing weekly podcasts this episode we are talking uh i'm talking with ben stukesbury about one of the best places to go kayaking in the whole world you can paddle from the cloud forest into the ocean you can be uh, alone in the wilderness for days at a time or paddle uh, roadside runs you can have maybe the easiest logistics of any paddling destination you want to go to. There's literally something for everyone from flat water, scenic paddles to class five expedition. Nah, uh, you, you can, you can have it all. And the place we're going to be talking about is of course, Ecuador. Ben Stooks, we welcome back to the show. Thanks, Seth. Uh, ben, I'm excited to speak with you because I know you, uh, have been on some savage missions in Ecuador recently and I have been fortunate enough to spend um, a few different trips in Ecuador, um, and I have a, a better idea of the lay of the land there. So this, unlike some of our other discussions where uh, I'm at something of a, a back foot about where you're going, uh, I actually have a, a pretty good idea about uh, about what Ecuador looks like, and I'm pretty excited to hear about some of the the things you've been doing there, and also just some of the changes you observed this year, kind of in that post-COVID times, uh, you know, what it's like, what you've noticed, uh, things that are similar, things that are different from your previous experiences there. Yeah, um, I can't believe it's, it took me, you know, over two decades of kayaking to get to Ecuador, honestly. I mean, <laughs> I've been to Colombia many times starting in 2003. And in fact, I traveled through Ecuador on my way from Colombia to Chile on my very first trip to, uh, to, to South America on a bus and like the bus stopped and my buddy who I had been paddling with ended up getting off the bus there. We had, you know, we had gotten into a pretty serious mission in Colombia. So I think it was time for us to go our separate ways. He got off there. Um, I heard from him later that he had an amazing trip, but again, I was just, I had always thought that like, you know, Colombia is so much bigger and it's, it's really not worth comparing the two countries because obviously they're just such different places. But I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just, I kind of thought that, um, I hate to say this, I hate to say this, but I, I kind of thought that Ecuador was like a bit of a beater's paradise. I can't <laughs> believe I just said that, but 
That's what was in my head, and it's just the. Hey man, we we are about telling the truth as you think it is here. All right. So if you think in your head that you used to believe Ecuador was a Beatus paradise, and now you know differently, that is <laughs> that's your truth, man. That's yeah. okay. Like don't guess, don't be afraid of that. Be, it would be more salacious if I still thought that because I mean it's it's definitely the opposite. I think you would have to be a flat out uh, idiot to think Ecuador is nothing but a beater's paradise because yeah. that, like, yes, it absolutely could be a beater's paradise. Like if it is, you, you want to get into out of it control, is a paradise. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you know, but it's, it's also, also, it's, it's also life extreme life kayaking. kayaking. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you take us through um, your your first full Ecuador mission then, 2021. Um, you're you're finally able, who convinced you that this, the Beatus Paradise would be uh, where you would be spending so much of your year? Again, I don't know how much I should let out of the bag here, but I it was kind of the only place that was open for business at the beginning of 2021. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of the only option like this is uh, you all know, right real like real talk real like talk for a second this. here like completely separate from your kayaking you're at the start of 2021 you're planning out trips and you're like the only place i can go is ecuador and in your mind you see that pop up in the group chat there of all the people you're going kayaking with the only option is ecuador like honestly what was it what did that look like i i mean so we had this we had this big mission planned for the spring of 2020. And then obviously, you know, the whole world stopped and um, we were gonna go back to Greenland. There's no secret there and try to pull another mission even further north. I mean, it was gonna be um, maybe the most epic kayaking mission that, that I had tried to undertake. It was of that caliber it had sponsors behind it. It was all ready to go. Like we were just short of literally signing the contracts and, you know, plane tickets were almost in the mail sort of thing. And then, yeah, everything shut down. And, um, yeah, we were wondering if, if, uh, you know, what, what the future had in store for us, um, for us kayakers, like, just just getting out of our hometowns to go kayaking in many places wasn't even an option. Luckily here in Montana, we were still able to to get out on the Clark Fork River for a while. But um, anyways, so as as things luckily began to improve and it seemed that maybe there'd be a potential for, you know, for us actually to, to go ahead and do a, a high level kayaking trip still Greenland sort of remained off the table. Um, and, you know, maybe just, maybe just this past summer, maybe something would have been possible there. But um, at any rate, that's why I started to pivot. And initially, I guess the first destination I started looking at, we started looking at was Alaska, trying to pull off something there, maybe something out towards the Aleutians. I mean, of course, there's legendary expeditions for paddlers laying in wait, whether, you know, it's a first descent or something that was only paddled by Andy Ambeck, as in what, uh, what Jerem, uh, Jeremy Nash got into this year over on, um, what was that river? Anyways, I digress. And 
um, I broke my shoulder. And so we're talking, yeah, so that was 2020. And the spring of 2020, just as we're pivoting to try to focus on something in Alaska, seeing that Alaska is going to continue to have its doors open, I break my shoulder on this steep creek into the Locksaw. It's pretty, pretty close to here in Missoula. And so I, I put myself out. And, um, and so again, like for me, Alaska's off the table. Um, and really the logistics don't work out for the, for the other members of the team to pull it off. And so we're going into the fall, uh, beginning of winter 2020 into 2021 and just scratching our heads and really trying to get this, this program done because the money's still on the table. It hasn't disappeared, but we know with everything that's been going on, it's just, we don't know how long that money is going to sit there in order to try to pull something off and, and, and make a production out of an expedition. And so, yeah, I mean, of course I've got, um, I've, I've met, you know, the one and only Abe Herrera, Mr. Booth Sessions himself, uh, at, at North Fork in the past. And, you know, the word on the street, it gets out pretty early that Ecuador is going to be open for business. Um, they're just going to require a COVID test. I mean, the, it can't be understated. I think how important whitewater tourism is, is to Ecuador. And it, I mean, it's become so evident to me as, as I've made my first journey there that like probably relative, you know, to the country, relative to these centers of Baeza and Tana, like whitewater kayaking is probably could be more important there than anywhere else on earth in terms I would, of the I would, sorry to, sorry to cut across you here but i would um i could not agree with you anymore like i think that baeza region like the napa region especially uh i think they would be completely flawed if whitewater tourism stopped because there's so much money that gets put into the taxi service the food the accommodations the like local area uh, around around Gina's, around Baeza there, uh, and around Borja and and Chaco and stuff like I. There is so much money coming in in those like November, December, January, February, March. Like that that must make up a huge portion of the rest of their year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not to mention just the cultural fact. But to to get back to how I ended up there. I got in touch with Abe, who I had met through my partner, Cheyenne, and um, I basically asked him point blank, is like, what, you know, is there something truly spectacular to try to pull off in Ecuador? I mean, I think by that point, by 2020, you know, I wasn't so stupid to think that Ecuador was a beater's paradise. I had seen Todd Wells' <laughs> film from the Zamora. I was aware of his his missions there. Um, you know, I, I heard about their attempt to do this other river called the Mulatos. Um, and, and, you know, Abe was just like, yeah, man, you know, like, holy shit. And so I was lucky enough that we were able to kind of sit down uh, virtually at that point, look at the map and just see like, basically the most obvious river 
in you know the the, <laughs> the biggest river i mean it's it's no secret the river that we went and, and tried to do it's it's just so obvious between the highest peak uh in the tropics and on the equator on on the planet and you know the headwaters of the largest river on the planet you have not just one river but multiple rivers that are falling you know up to 10,000 vertical feet of of rivers that have never been paddled before and so that's the kind that's like the kind of unique combination that could easily stand up next to a trip that we plan to try to accomplish the most northern river on earth you can take one of these crazy rivers that has uh, multiple rivers that have sections of you know eight to ten thousand vertical feet of gradient that have never been paddled before and are locked into these um, crazy vertical walls with untrammeled jungle all around um, yeah, it's um, yeah. What he what he described to me and what I was seeing on satellite imagery was some kind of Shangri La and also um, a crazy puzzle um, and and a really I don't know. I hate to say really dangerous, but like that's what I would find out when I went to go do a scout mission um, this past January. We were on we were right on the the edge of going after the mission and just being able to get all the logistics together but thank god we didn't because when i showed up last january my shoulder wasn't quite all the way healed and and honestly i needed that uh, six week long trip just to like understand exactly what we were up against which was um probably the most challenging weather conditions that you can think of found anywhere on earth to try to try to take on um, uh, a first descent of that caliber. So let me let me ask you a little like segue sidebar question here. So Abe, I bet I imagine the conversation with Abe was like, hey, Abe, we want to do an epic mission in uh, Ecuador. And I imagine he has like some kind of restaurant menu of things that he's been looking at that he hasn't had the, the right crew or the right amount of funding for yet. Um, how did you narrow down that? What I imagine is like a cheesecake factory style menu, like two or three pages of, of options down to the, the top three you wanted to go, go after. <laughs> well, um, the one that I wanted to go after wasn't on his menu, <laughs> really? but it was, but it was, you know, somewhere in the zone, it was near a river that, that he had made an attempt on with Galen and Todd and they'd been rained out almost right off the bat. Um, so he knew the zone, but the word on the, the thought was amongst all the, the top paddlers in the area, including him, that it was completely unrunnable and impossible and as it turned out after some some scouting um it turned out that he was right and so that didn't end up being the river that we tried but did that give of, you did that give you like pause for thought to be like uh like when you know a, a very well established like local expedition kayaker says i think this is too much and you say 
let's look anyway. And then it turns out to be too much. Uh, did did that like make you sit up in your chair a little bit a little bit taller for the the next thing you went to go look at? Oh yeah, I mean, pretty pretty early on into the into the process of, of searching for this candidate, of searching for this suitable, most spectacular river exp- expedition that we could find in Ecuador that we could also pull off. Um, he put me in touch with Andres Charpentier, long time now long time guide with small small world expeditions and uh andres was really the one who made the call because andres was the one who initially went up in the chopper to try to do the scout of the the general area and um he came back from that scout and was just yeah he he said that um he said no it's you know it just doesn't look possible man like and of course like what i what I was initially telling myself was perfect. You know, that's exactly what I want to hear. Like if you're saying it looks good to go, then maybe we have a problem. But if you're saying it looks impossible, that sounds great. And then, you know, when I saw some of the footage that they shot, um, it, it still took me a few, several months to come around to the, to the harsh reality that, yeah, it's, this this other river is probably one of the most challenging objectives, whitewater objectives on the planet has to be. Um, and uh, I don't I don't really want to say it's impossible, but it seems like if if it were if there was a river that was impossible, that could be it. Um, Would it be fair to say that like with the current boating technology that exists right now, the current way people kayak down rivers? the current technology we have to access places via helicopter, it would be fair to say like right now it's, it's probably impossible. Yeah. That mostly, like leaves it kind of open-ended, right? Like you can come back to that. Like you've still got a few years left in you. Like maybe, maybe there'll be an improvement. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knows? I think that the boat, the, it's not so much the boating as it is the portaging, the places <laughs> that you would have to portage where you couldn't portage almost. I mean, it would be, yeah, it would be more of like a limitation due to um, nobody's doing that kind of climbing with their kayak. And I uh, mean, tech, like rope climbing technology is going up all the time, you know, like, uh, exactly. like so improving, improve mechanical advantages, like ascenders and stuff like it's out yeah, there. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I think that, that, yeah, I was, I was a little startled by that the river itself, but also realizing that, oh my God, you know, these, these kayakers there are, they know their shit. You know, these aren't like some, some beaters boating around with, you know, they probably do have old gear because that's the only kind of gear that they can get in Ecuador, unfortunately. Yeah. There's no, no kayak shops there. There's no kayak shops there. Anything that would actually come in officially, say a container of kayaks or some shipment of goods is going to get taxed 100%, which is total bummer for their kayaking community because, you know, already they're at a financial disadvantage to a lot of the developed world. And then you add on top of that, you double the price on top of that. Um, that's why it's that's why it's like <laughs> it's become evident to me that it's it's important. It's like it's it's a feel-good reason to, to want to travel to Ecuador because this kayaking community exists there and it's um, it's thriving, but 
in many ways because of the foreigners that travel there and that are able to, you know, leave their gear, sell, sell gear, hopefully at a, you know, at a real reasonable price to help out that community. So, but, um, but really impressed with, with Andres and, um, he was, he was the one during that helicopter flight, during that scout mission, supposedly the helicopter got off track, but I'm pretty sure that Andres diverted the flight to go up a river that he had been thinking about. That was a river that also wasn't on Abe's menu. That was a river that after he flew over it for the very first time, he did end up recommending to us, which again, my shitty, silly, um, ignorant brain thought, oh, gosh, I don't want to do a river that some other paddler is recommending for me, you know, like my ego is, is too big for that. And it's yeah, you got to put yourself hard. in check a lot more. It's not going to be hard enough or whatever. <laughs> and it that river took me, you know, took me, us, uh, a group of some of the strongest paddlers that I know of, um, 31 days with helicopter support to to complete um so and, all right i've got to ask another another only ben stooksbury would know this question when you're looking at like uh you're looking on google maps you're looking at first ascent you're you've put your ego in check and uh you know like from a local kayak it's like okay we should try this one i think it's going to be good like how much suffering are you like budgeting for in your mind? Are you like, I'm going to get to paddle one day out of every out of five. I'm going to like, what, how does your mindset work for how much walking uh, and misery you're going to have to take for some kayaking? Mm. Well, I mean, on the Greenland mission, we had probably, uh, five or six days of actually good whitewater kayaking for 41 days of, of going after it. I mean, that was the extreme, but also, you know, the, the kite skiing is, is definitely a part. I mean, that's, I can't look back on that and say that was necessarily suffering. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm personally like I'm willing to, um, to not, you know, spend the majority of the time kayaking. And I'm, I'm definitely more interested in like solving puzzles as opposed to getting uh, unlimited strokes. So that what? doesn't necessarily bother me so much. The one Does it bother the did... other people in your crew? So th this is my, my follow-up question was like, okay, you're, <laughs> oh, yeah. you're like you when you're picking people to go kayaking with, like what's the, like what's the start? Like, it's not like, hey, can you roll on one side? Uh, like three times out of five is like, Hey, how many days are you prepared to walk? Like, what's what's yeah, the like? What's your exactly. top five questions? Like, how many days we go without food? Like, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I would think. I mean, just like when you're, you know, when when things seem like at that critical life or death moment, are you able to tell a funny joke? Um, you know, and a lot of times it's me who needs to hear that joke so that I start to laugh. Like it's the, the team aspect of it can't be overstated. Like everybody's going to have a shitty day. I'm not just out there like bulletproof. Like I I'll, I'll suffer too. Like at the end of the first push through this river, I, I came down with a pretty bad case of foot rot and, um, and I whacked myself in the hand with a machete and, you know, like 
fuck. It's just like every, you, I, I just feel person on a personal level for these type of this particular expedition in Ecuador and previous ones, like I couldn't have done it without the team members. Uh, and uh, so it's like, <laughs> I guess the first question is, are you, are you going to be able to like carry me out of this river? Like, I mean, are you strong enough to save my ass? Um, because that's really what it boils down to is you want to have the best possible chance. Cause these, these people that are right around you are your only lifeline. You know, forget about the helicopter. That helicopter is only good for getting a little bit of footage from the air and maybe dropping a bag of food out of the plane. It's never going to be able to pop down into the jungle with a 150 foot canopy on the side of a cliff and get you out of there, you know, short of like some kind of Navy SEAL team coming out of a Black Hawk. And even then, like, I, you know, it's the people that are on the ground in there with you, you know, we're getting moral support from the outside and we had so much help from the outside, but it, it just, these have to be your first responders. And, uh, and then, you know, and then just like the bedside manner, the, the, the camaraderie, um, you just try to pick this combination of really good friends and, um, really strong, like-minded individuals. I know on this trip that we're kind of talking around the edge of right now because you're kind of still stuck under contract, but I know you, you, we've already discussed a Pereira and I want to tell a funny, uh, a Pereira sidebar, uh, story to you real quick. Cause it's, uh. It's, it, he's yeah. a great he's a great guy for that, those brevity moments so yeah, I, uh, I was paddling in ecuador with him i paddled with him a bunch of times but um this time we were doing this river called cofanes which is um a really like cool like doesn't get I run very it. often river um you have to be really beautiful lucky with the weather the yeah th so it's the, exactly that beautiful photo that's on the wall in genus um it's incredible it's like a really great epic run um, but it's a it's a full on adventure too. Like you have to, it takes basically a day to get to the put in. It's like up the end of this dirt road that goes on. It seems like for eternity. Like right in the cloud forest. The first day is like all through these super tight, like really high gorges. Like once you start, you basically can't get out uh, until until the end, right? And you camp um, at the end of like this uh, confluence with another river called the Dorado River. Um, but once you're at the confluence, the white water kind of eases up, right? And the the crux of the whole day one, which is the hardest day, is entering this, like, I think it's Canyon 2 or Canyon 3. And there's, you get out to scout, and uh, I've put on with Abe and these two Czech guys. And look, we're looking at, like, basically what's looking like Abe's describing as the crux rapid, right? And he knows he was on the first descent of this river or something, the second descent. Like, he's been there before. He knows, like, this move and the next two are like kind of the crux and then the very last one at the end of the day. So it's like, okay, like th this is like as big as it's going to get. And we're like, he's a hop out. We'll go scout this. And we're looking at this entrance rapid, which goes like, it kind of looked like a booth. And you, if you think it's like six feet, but you can't really tell from where we're standing. And this is higher than, than Abe's run it before. And he thinks it's like maybe the highest anyone at, since then it's been run higher, but uh, at that time, he's like, oh, I don't think anyone's run it this high before. And I'm looking at this rapid like there is no way I want to run this thing. It looks like kind of a good booth, maybe in like one exactly one boat wide area. And then all the rest is like 
obviously a hole that's like back backed up by these big rocks and on the right it kind of looks like a pocket that might be a cave and i'm like i'm standing there on this rock like looking for ways around this rapid uh, which there there isn't and uh we're all standing there and then an abe like completely straight face points above the like downstream above the rapid there's uh one of those orange birds like the cock of the rock birds uh like the birds of paradise are like orange orange breast uh black wings uh big like kind of mohawk they're like indigenous to like this one area of ecuador like eastern ecuador and he's like yeah, yeah. oh <laughs> oh look at that uh, whatever it's called whatever the ecuadorian name for it is he's like oh yes it's a good omen I will go now and like completely straight face just walks back to his boat and gets in. And I'm like, Are you serious? And uh, he looks at me and like gives me a little wink and then just like gre- absolutely greases this line. And I was like, okay, great. Well, I feel a lot better about it now. But I felt that that little like brevity moment was what I needed to be like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. Oh man. Yeah. He, the, the number of times he, he, he uh, counseled us through a bad scenario or bad weather forecast or a good weather forecast that turned into a bad weather forecast. So let, let's or, talk about the weather. Let's talk about the weather there a little bit. For people who don't know Ecuador, um, it's a lot of the kayaking is in this like really, really, really absurdly dense rainforest. Um, and because of the, the nature of the rivers, like it rains a lot. And sometimes those heavy rains lit well almost every time those heavy rains lead to like kind of flash river rises and then flash river falls. So, you know, if it's some, there's some rivers you're on where if it starts raining, you, you kind of want to either paddle a lot faster or like maybe go uh, have a break for 10 minutes and just see what happens. Um, what, what kind of were you, you guys are obviously locked into a big, a big project um, with only helicopters support and many days of walking. How did, how were you seeing that weather hit you? Um, how did that start to affect you over time? What uh, what was the craziest weather you you were seeing there? Yeah, so I I'll go back to January when I had my my first trip there when we when I did the scout trip there with with Noria. Um, we we showed up, which was gonna be our our start date for the mission, which was January. I guess it's said that there's a dry season that happens. Initially, my understanding was there's a dry season that happens somewhere between November and January. And then the rest of the year is kind of. I think it's just, I think it's just fair to say like drier. Drier, right. Yeah. Drier. I mean, I, I've kind of heard more dry season or what what was in my mind and then yeah so what's more correct is drier because the day we show up in Baeza um, bridge to bridge all the rocks are covered which means that when I say the rocks the rocks in that river are what 10 feet tall 15 oh yeah like if all the rocks are covered you're in for a big day yeah and it was like yeah it was amazing following Abe Nori and I were following Abe but like hair raising too. I was completely gripped. Abe started the run with like, you guys ready for this? I was like, what do you mean? You're with Nuria and I'm, I'm all right, you know, and <laughs> Jesus Christ. And I like almost wanted to hike out halfway through, you know, halfway through this, the, the beginner class four river. Yeah. It's roadside. Really. Like the whole, the whole runs roadside. 
the roadside classified river. I wanted to yeah. hike out and uh, made it through there. And then we wanted to kind of get our feet wet and try a little exploratory mission. So we were up off the side of Sumaco, hiked into another river, um, started going downstream, hit a box canyon, and we had already made one move too many. So now we're looking up at vertical walls. And as we're looking up at the vertical walls, it just starts to piss down rain. And I'm like, Nuria, and we made it 500 meters down our first attempt on a first descent in Ecuador. And I'm like, Nuria, we gotta get the, we gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and luckily Nuria is just a total, like she's half mountaineer and she scrambles up this horrific scree jungle pile on the side of this cliff throws down our 60 meter rope i jumar out and by that point we've lost all of our light we we bivy up top in the jungle set up our hammocks and in the morning the river is 10 feet higher and charging over this 100 foot waterfall like i mean it's that's the kind of experience that I've had over and over again. I think I've done one overnighter. I did one overnighter in Ecuador. My first overnighter, my partner Cheyenne ended up coming uh, at the beginning of February at the end of my, my first scout trip just to hang out, have a little romantic trip with my honey. And our first overnighter on the lower Quijos was awesome, no worries. We had a beautiful night. I thought it was great. And then this next overnighter we did, we went down into the coca below the catastrophe at Salto San Rafael. And that river rose 40 feet on us when we were camped out, Whoa. unfortunately above this canyon. But I'd never even come close to seeing that in my whole entire kayaking career. The river came up 40 feet. I shit you not. I'm not embellishing at all. It was insane, like the amount of, I mean, luckily the river did so um, in in concert with a shit ton of rain that fell directly on us because we realized that very early in the morning we moved our camp up because our, our bivy side, our hammocks in the trees would have gone under too. So, I mean, that's, it's like you have to plan on it you have to it's the it's you know there are other places of course in the tropics where that's um it's it's the strategy that you have to have is that you always have to be prepared you always want to be able to escape to higher ground because they can come quick and they can they can also come like flash floods that um up here in North America only happened in the desert Southwest because of, you know, lack of any sort of groundwater or any sort of uh, ability for the terrain to soak the water up. You get flash floods in desert Southwest. Um, but there you can get them because it rains so hard and it causes landslides and a landslide can block a tributary. And then once that, that, landslide fails or that natural dam fails you get something coming all at once like like a big wall of water so you have to be very cognizant of your surroundings very cognizant of the weather if uh, i mean and in some ways you you, you got to get a little bit lucky but um 
and there have been there have been accidents, of course, right? And the the worst one of the worst kayaking accidents in in the history of Whitewater happened there in was it 2016? Uh, 2017. Lost, 2017 when we lost yeah, two paddlers at the same time. Um, and uh, so you have to be really careful, really mindful. And and <laughs> if you're going to do overnighters there, then um, it's it's an additional risk that you take, uh, you know. And I think that there's plenty of ways to really uh, mitigate that risk and reduce it to very slim, if not no chance of having that happen to you while you're on the river. But um, if you're you know if you're doing playing the expedition game, playing the exploratory game, not knowing what you're getting into. Um, having to spend multiple nights out on the river, um, it's, it, it's scary. Um, and, and it's something that over the course of these 31 days, 31 nights that I spent on this particular river in Ecuador, um, it was something that I felt like I was getting used to, but something that was just like the, the amount of stress that I felt when it would start to rain on on the tarp above my hammock was just it was pretty savage i didn't yeah i, didn't I, I straight up i that. used to avoid overnighters all, all the trips i've done there I've, I've done a few overnighters down there but yeah, if it was it. like the option to like we could start two hours earlier and just do a one day or we could just paddle a bit harder or a bit faster and just go a, just just not have to do that I was all, I was 100% always opt for I would not do that because if yeah. you got caught you hear you're in your hammock and you're all cozy and then you hear that drip 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 like I I just couldn't sleep like that, <laughs> that'd be it it'd be like you're awake for the rest of the night because you're like is this going to be nothing like am I just are we going to get a little bit of like small localized rain and maybe the river will change color slightly and that'll be that or like am I going to have to wake up at 3 a.m. and like put on all my wet kayaking gear and like somehow move higher up ground. Uh, you know, like I, it, it, like you say, it's, it's, it's stressful. Uh, it's really stressful. Um, my buddy Todd Wells uh, and a group, they put on just the, the standard Hoyin overnighter just before the Hoyin waterfall was reduced to like a 15 foot pour over. And so luckily they got to camp. Luckily my other buddy, Dave was standing right beside the river and basically saw the river just surging up and they were able to pull the boats up and it was all good. So um, I think with planning and I, you know, the other side of it is, is that if you go after a big mission and you're not prepared to spend the night, then that can put you in, also put you in a more compromised position, in my opinion. If you don't have the resources to say, uh, say you're in a in a spot where you've got a canyon below you and the rain is just coming down and you have no overnight gear and you feel like you have to just send it, you know, maybe if you would have had overnight gear, it would have been better just to bivy up, get up mm -hmm. into the jungle, find a flat space and call it off. Yeah, and that was something that we certainly did multiple times. 
on this river. So EJ's EJ's got a really good Ecuador story, uh, not too dissimilar to that. Um, that I'll have to get him on here to talk about at some time. But uh, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Like if you're, especially for you guys, you know, you're playing the expedition game, like you kind of, you got to be on that footing all the time, right? Like, oh, another night in the jungle. Yeah, another night in the jungle. And just like, you know, I guess another attribute of, of a good team member for, for an expedition like this is just patience. I mean, that's probably the the utmost attribute. And the, the thing that, that Andre Charpentier, as we were leaving to to go into the river the first time, all he just he was just like he had this song and dance going on. He's just paciencia, 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 and that was that became what I what I tried to use as my personal mantra. It was just patience, patience. Just you know, the more patient you are, the you know the less you're going to get in a hurry, and the less that you know, hopefully the less it'll make a mistake. And even then, I feel like I made a few mistakes along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, for definitely for the overnight game, for the expeditions game. That seems to be that seems to be what you need to to be on the the patience the patience train. Um, so the other thing I want to talk to you about is what your your experience with was with hydro projects and uh, mining and resource extraction in Ecuador. Uh, I've been there three separate trips. Twenty. 15, 16, 16, 17, and 18, 19. And one of the, the big things I noticed was how fast uh, they seem to be moving on building dams and how shady, how shady the whole dam building process is and how aggressive and shady resource and mineral extraction is, uh, especially in some of the smaller towns. Um, yeah. Especially actually that Kafanes trip I was on with Abe, uh, and I I was lucky to go up to that river two times. But the 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 reason you can get there and there's a, a road there is because uh, a mining company was doing their very best to try and get a mining concession like right in that town basically. Uh, and luckily through I think working with Abe and Ecuador Rivers Institute, um, they were able to kind of kibosh that that particular. Um, mining concession but there's so many others uh that seem to be illegal or uh, i don't know people are getting bribed like you know things are changing hands under the table um what what was your experience running into that there um i know you you haven't done like a lot of trips there so you're not seeing necessarily like a lot of changes over time but even from your scouting trip to when you actually ended up putting on did you notice any anything of that nature yeah, I mean, certainly the the biggest thing that I noticed was the change that happened right in front of our eyes with the San Rafael waterfall. I mean, it was something that I was seeing online that was just blowing my mind. Um, I think it was the icon of Ecuador, something that I, one of the few things that I knew about Ecuador prior to um prior to going there and then being aware of its collapse and then going there to see this, what was the world's largest arch that had formed in its place where the river had evacuated underneath the arch and then um, boating under that arch, boating through this, this canyon that you could, well, that was brand new and that had caused so much damage to the river downstream through the 
oil pipeline and um, and then hearing about the arch collapse and this catastrophe and seeing and hearing that you know all of these coincidental um, landscape changing catastrophes had happened just right as these steps had been taken to dam this major tributary to the Amazon, dam and divert this major tributary to the Amazon around the waterfall. One of the longest diversion structures ever built, financed with um, plentiful Chinese money and um, engineered with pretty, uh, pretty shady Chinese engineering and construction um and also built like with almost 100 percent chinese manpower and that's one of the, the most shocking differences i saw from my first trip in 2015 to when i let like was last there in 2019 was like in that time that the biggest dam had been completed and then suddenly that town of el chaco like uh where you'd get on for Akachi, suddenly it had been like there had been a lot of stuff going on there and because there was a lot of money coming in from Chinese workers. And then all those Chinese workers were all gone and there was a lot of stores shuttered. There was a lot less activity in the town. It was mm. like a stark contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to be xenophobic about this. Like, you know, the United States has been responsible for, for plenty of, uh, of economic just yeah um, don't don't get me wrong i'm from england like we did a lot of really bad stuff yeah like, and it's know, really not a lot of really bad is... stuff at the expense of an empire but to, but to it, see it in front of your eyes um in such a short it, time span yeah in this particular case it, it is it is chinese um and, and it's and it's chinese infrastructure uh, companies that were building massive infrastructure projects in China for a long time. And, you know, now that that those are, I guess, slowing down, you know, certainly after the completion of like the Three Gorges project on the Yangtze, they're turning their focus outward. And uh, but it's just amazing at, at how how shady the construction has been of this project that was, you know, billions of dollars. And um, you know, there's the concrete that they poured for the powerhouse has all these cracks in it. So it's never functioned at full capacity. And Ecuador continues to pay off this $1.8 billion loan with the vast majority or a, a large portion of its petroleum reserves. Uh, the whole thing is just um, so sad, especially in know losing the country's iconic waterfall but even more so in the damage that's taken place downstream in the local communities the indigenous communities on the rio uh, coca that uh you know not only were they polluted with all this sediment that's that's blown out from behind the waterfall but then also what hundreds of thousands of gallons of, of petroleum that leaked out of the oil pipeline because they they refused um, they refused to turn the oil pipeline off. They being, I guess, the the Ecuadorian National Petroleum Company refused to turn the oil pipeline off. So it's just been a catastrophe. Um, you know, a lot of corruption, it seems, with the government that is um, is benefiting from signing off on all of these 
these big infrastructure projects and then it's all linked back to to what is now one of the biggest threats to the country which is gold mines and you know for sure around the um the outflow of this particular river that we were running that we were quote unquote exploring there are huge open pit gold mines where they just go and are taking you know the biggest backhoes in the world and just chewing up the jungle spitting it out and pouring cyanide or mercury over the top and getting the gold flower out so it's a huge industrial process it's basically an industry that's eating the jungle in order to produce you know this relatively small quantity of gold that if they're able to chew up enough jungle which in many places especially in the south of the country they they're they're chewing up huge chunks tracts of jungle and land and mountain to produce um, you know significant quantities of gold but you know this is destruction that's um, that's impossible to reverse when you're talking about this this ancestral jungle with you know trees that are hundreds of years old um, yeah it's the the economics of it are disgusting too because it's another one of those situations where there's actually not even really a benefit for like the ecuadorian economy like if the local people aren't getting those jobs like like it's foreign investments uh it's foreign loans so that the government can pay for foreign companies to come and mine the mine those resources and then you know when it's all mined out like they take all the equipment and all the workers and they leave and go exploit somewhere else and all the people in the area are left with are like just a big sandpit and and like you say destruction uh and they didn't really they you know it wasn't even like well at least there's some benefit to the economy in that area it's like no that there was there was nothing really yeah no it's 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 incredibly sad uh you know certainly a few few jobs that are created but like you said the equipment is is being imported much of the workforce is being imported and um you know they're able to pull this off by simply paying off corrupt officials and making those payoffs go all the way down the line to the police forces and then um you know there are certainly local infrastructure companies that benefit from this you know that because these mines have to be powered by something and and many of these mines are powered by um, these hydroelectric facilities that are coming online because you know certainly the especially after coca-cola ecuador became an energy exporter um and so the continued damming of rivers is simply seems to be powering um, the big resource extraction so it's it's pretty crazy and then even for you know what what, what's really good and what's really going on that could be helpful is the ecotourism of course but even you know the local people that are involved in this really productive sector of the economy are afraid to speak up because of their fear of retribution 
um, the very real fear. You know, there's already been members of the community that have have been assassinated for for speaking out too loudly. So it's a crazy situation, um, and it's you know it's not unique to Ecuador, of course. You know, this is the same thing that's playing out next door in Colombia and Brazil and basically throughout the Amazon, you know, because the Amazon is what, it's just so resource rich when, you know, whether it's cattle or timber or gold or petroleum, like um, it's, it's frightening to think about, but, um, but, you know, there are, there are these brights, these bright spots, I should say. I think Ecuador's Ecuador is very lucky that it has uh, people like Matt Terry, who runs uh, Ecuador Rivers Institute there, sure. yeah, um, who are like advocating. Uh, they're able to advocate in a way where they don't have to worry about retribution as much. Um, yeah. And that is, is empowering for a, a lot of people in that local uh, ecotourism community to say, OK, like there's someone we can support who advocates for us. Right. And that's what a lot of the other those other areas in South America are missing is that that one conduit person between uh, like the, the government, the local government, the federal government and the, the local people uh, without being worried about that kind of middle ground reprisal step. Well, and, and in terms of what he's already done to uh, save the, the Piatua River, I mean, it's incredible um, the work that he's done and the way that he's he's able to really chase it through the court systems and do everything by the book and just, I mean, essentially dedicate his whole life to, to making sure that, you know, they can't come after him and they can't come after the local people and, and, and taking so much of the responsibility on his own shoulders to the point where they were able to, to actually find that that Piatua project was, under the table, that there were multiple payoffs to local officials, that in fact the judge that was arbitrating the case had been paid off. I mean, this the stories are numerous, but that Rio Piatua is, you know, one of the more classic rivers, uh, classic, well well known, commonly paddled rivers in the country, and um, it's only still free flowing thanks to him and you know his his uh, and the the local paddling community that's. Um, fighting pretty much every day to make that happen. You know, yeah, that, that river is a true Ecuadorian. Like if you say Ecuador, you think Pier 2 are like warm water, uh, like smooth, smooth bedrock, boulder garden, like just yeah. endless fun rapids, nothing scary, no portages, just like just good good time. Like put in a bridge, take out a bridge, just like the, the, the bee's knees of what you would want from kayaking in Ecuador. Um, and yeah, I, I remember like when I was last there, they, you know, like to go to the pudding, you'd drive by like all these parks diggers and you'd be like, oh, okay, I've, I've seen this exact story play out already on the topo in, in Banos. Like I, mm. I, it's sad, but I know the outcome. And when I, I remember reading the, like later that year or the subsequent year that they had, uh, they had found all these people were corrupt and, um, and it was not going ahead. I was elated. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah, so I've, I've just only become familiar with all these incredible stories and this this amazing fight that's going on. I mean, it's a, it's a sad on one side, but it's amazing on the other because oh, you have these foreign paddlers. Um, Matt, of course, it's dedicated his his whole life to this fight, 
And because of his love of, of the rivers that he found in Ecuador and joining with, with Andres and Gabriel Garvin, paddlers from all over the world, really, and especially the paddlers that live there, like, it's, it's pretty cool to see. So I think that there's a lot of positivity there. There's a lot that, uh, that, that, that also people should know um, that when I first got to Ecuador, my first impressions of Ecuador as compared to Colombia, which is obviously a much bigger country, but I just found Ecuador to be this Shangri-La, like looking up into the mountains above Tena, being around Baeza. Like my travel, admittedly, in Ecuador has been fairly limited. Like I haven't seen the south of the country. I haven't been out to the Pacific coast. But my my vision of that little area, this this sort of epicenter of whitewater kayaking in Ecuador between Baeza and Tena was just like so much jungle, so many beautiful rivers. Like there's so much there to fight for. And um, and as compared to Colombia, like so much more intact jungle than I was used to seeing, you know, around some of the big cities in Colombia. So I think, um, yeah, I, I would just encourage people to to travel there and to do whatever they could to support the the effort to protect the rivers, which could be as simple as, you know, leaving some gear with the Ecuador Kayak Club. Or making a small donation to the Ecuadorian Rivers Institute, or you know, showing up at a at a protest in downtown Tena, just getting in, involved and letting them know that like, you know, you're interested in helping out, spreading the word to friends. Yeah, I, th- I think that this is kind of a, a great segue to kind of line like line us up for rounding this out. But I couldn't. I've been to Ecuador three times. I I imagine I'll go again. Um, it, at some point in the future, like there's really so much kayaking to do for everyone there of all different types of kayaking, whether you want to do something, you know, hard and steep or something, you know, chill or something big water or something with lots of rocks. Uh, it's, it's got, it's got it all. Um, there's something for everyone. Uh, it's very easy. It's logistically one of the most easy places to be a kayaker ever. You get these taxi, all the taxis, uh, pickup trucks and you get a pickup truck, all your boats go in the back. You go to whatever river, like all the local taxi drivers know all the put-ins, all the takeouts. You organize your time, you know, okay, see you then, bye-bye. Um, it's it's the best. It's easily one of the, the easiest places to go kayaking. You can switch between areas very easily by the bus system, which is um, very good. Yeah, o- overall, I really, uh, I can't encourage people to go enough. And like you said, if you can do those extra little steps, if you can... Uh, you know, do a little donation to ERI, like leave some gear with Ecuador Kayak Club, show up at a little protest. Um, that's that's it goes such a long way to helping out uh, that local community, and, and they appreciate it too. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many, there's so many little kids along the banks of the river. Um, you know, especially along the banks of that Hanyaku River in Tena, like. Stop there. Say hello. Let them get in your kayak. Paddle around. These kids are like, they're dying to get into the kayaks. So I think the dream would be is like, turn each one of these little riversides community into a kayaking community, because um, they're the ones who are going to be able to fight best for their river. They're the ones that are going to be. They're the only ones that can protect their river. 
Yeah, and, and the cool thing is there's already Ecuadorians who see that vision too and are, and are starting to move towards it. So, uh, you know, the, the, the snowball's already rolling down the hill, but if we can help push it along, uh, that certainly wouldn't hurt. Yep. And I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily to give away your gear per se, because there is there is value in creating value in your gear. And, and in some cases, giving away your gear only creates... Um, you know, could create potentially some jealousy. So it's it's really a matter of, I think, first and foremost, making an effort to um, to to get to know the local paddling community. First of all, you know, don't just give away gear on your way out. But you know, if you're not getting a guide in Ecuador, like make a point to to include one of the locals in your kayaking group, you know, pay for their gas, get them, you know, put them in the taxi with you. And I think it's, that's just a great way to start to make that connection and to start to understand what's really going on there. Um, because I, I think that's one of the coolest things or one of the things that I've come to really appreciate and, and really love about Ecuador so much is just, just the people, you know, it's, for many of us, Abe is sort of the gateway, the gatekeeper or the, the gateway drug, so to speak. And you're like, fuck, is, is everyone in Ecuador this nice? And you're like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of <laughs> so them. Yeah, not every single crazy. one, but man, like a lot, there's a, oh. it's like, it's like Canada and South America. It's like a lot of nice people down there. There are a lot of friendly yeah. people. A lot of friendly people and a lot of people that are worth getting to know. And a lot of, a lot of people that have stories that will, uh, can make your trip that much richer yeah no doubt man all right ben um i'm excited to uh see the production of your trip that we've talked around this entire podcast uh do you know yes. when that's coming out yeah we'll uh you know you can stay tuned to my social where, where can people find you if they've been living uh, under a rock this whole time if they've been living under a rock they can find me at at ben stokesbury on ig I do still have some Facebook accounts that are similar, Ben Stokesbury, uh, with two O's. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let everybody know when that stuff's going to come out because uh, super excited to share that, that expedition with, uh, with all my friends and peers in the, in the kayaking community. Yeah, I'm, I'm hyped to see it. I know a lot of people are going to be hyped to see it. So uh, that's exciting. Uh, for this episode, this has been questions you ever thought to ask the whitewater kayaking podcast we will see you again soon peace